me the cable for the for the soundboard so I can start us off right here. What? You need the you need the aux, bro? Yeah, I need the uh I need the aux for the beginning of the show. I've never gotten to use the aux before, so this will be hmm. this will be new and exciting. Hi Chris, this is Rachel Dolezal and this little shout out is from Will. So Will tells me he just turned 32 and he's so sorry that he was not able to win the set of woodblock prints for you, but (laughs) I hope you have a happy birthday and I hope the year ahead is amazing for you. Hi Chris, this is Rachel Dolezal. It's it's going going on loop now. Okay. All right. Now you can have it back. I didn't even, yeah, I didn't even listen to it. I was like, oh, good. It's done. I can't believe that she had to say, uh, didn't win the woodblock prints for you. It took a while, too. She had to read, what the fuck are woodblock prints? Like, you know, that internal dialogue is like, the fuck are woodblock prints winning? What is this? Yeah, that definitely took a couple of takes. Poor poor Rachel Dolezal only got paid $10 a take for my birthday gift. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that would replay. I think that would be a good idea. Yeah. Um, we have a classic episode called "Do for a Mulligan," as one does. And yeah, about every fifteen, twenty episodes. Sometimes you got to have one for the vault. Sometimes we got to just vault one. So, in case we end up using this one, that's what we just did. Oh, we're one hundred p going to use this one. Why? Because you don't want to record again later this week. Are you sure you're going to be able to make it good? It seems like both of us are having a hard time paying attention. <laughs> this is what happens in the summertime. So I told you earlier that I was like, why is my head hot? Yeah. Did I get sunburn on my head? Oh, no. Um, oh, I should have used the drop for that. Anyway. Um, like I, I <laughs> Speaking of not even being able to pay attention to your own train of thought. <laughs> We're off to a very inauspicious start in, in minute one oh, of, this, boy. of this mulligan episode. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, life is hard. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I... Oh, boy. So I'm going to have to carry this one, too, huh? Okay, well. <clears throat> I put on this polo today, and it's always been big, and today was very tight. So I'm feeling ways. You know, uh, update on Will's weight problem. 16 pounds. <laughs> oh, no way. You gained a pound? No, I didn't weigh myself. I don't know. We could do a live weighing later. That I don't think a- that's a good idea. <laughs> you know. Oh, I should have leaned back. But the way know. our planned uh, segments have gone tonight has been uh, almost exclusively negative. So. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we should. We've We've each had one beverage now. Yeah. So we can kind of talk about anything. Yeah. Uh, we're loose and soft. Five mm-hmm. o'clock warm. Brain warmed water that on the Nautilus loose. of your ears outside. What the fuck? I'm quoting from my favorite story. Huh. Listeners of the show will know. Oh, is this one of your solo ones that uh, I didn't listen yeah. to? Yeah. Because um, you, did you just read Diving Board Story? <clears throat> yeah, I read the Diving Board Story. Have you huh. ever actually read that story? Yeah. I, I remember um, enlisting you to read it at a certain point, and you actually conceded that it was pretty good. Well, you printed me a PDF and said, you will read this right now and would not leave me alone until I completed it. Yeah, that was back in the day. That was years and years ago when I first got on my Wallace trip hmm. and I discovered that story. And we were having some kind of argument about writers or something. I don't think it was a real argument, but like you were very resistant to the idea that David Foster Wallace was important. At least that's my memory of it. Oh, no, I just was very adamant that he was a douche canoe. Great, great writer, but douche canoe based on him throwing Mary Carr around like a rag doll. Is that true or is that just according to her? I think he pushed her out of a moving car. Okay. That does sound like something that you he know, would do. You know, yeah, I guess. <laughs> you know, th- they had a contemptuous relationship. Yeah, but like two geniuses having a contemptuous relationship is really sexy. That's a thing that is missing from culture. Fighting and fucking? Yeah. Well, generally, yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know. I remember watching a panel discussion with her once where they kept asking her about Infinite Jest, and I because she was dating Wallace at the time. He was Did she throw that. a shoe at it someone's head? It really seems like she's really tired of people asking her about David Foster Wallace. Uh, I you read the the memoir book, right? No, I did not. I oh. think you lent that to a different friend. But what does she say in that? No, like when she was doing promo for it, she was like, you know, I've accepted the fact that I dated this like icon. Yeah. And when people ask me about it at this point, I have a, a response that's canned and it's moved on, which I didn't see in my youth. Oh, you know, like it was. It was very like I've come to Jesus with that happened. It's over. We're moving on, like because it does fit into her meta narrative about how do you narrate a life lived right right so like you know brushes with great like inner being intertwixed with greatness while being great yourself but like dealing with hashtag the bandana patriarchy like right that's a big part of her story too she's like what the this guy gets all this shit and i have to like teach at a community college fuck off right well he taught at a community college too you know until he didn't but I, you know, I think yeah. this happens a lot, like especially with the family members of really famous people. Like Jacob Dylan is notorious for being kind of a diva when asked about his father. Um, he wrote one song. Same with um, what's his name, uh, John Lennon's son, Sean Lennon. You know, yeah, you know, like I, I'm just thinking. Which of, one's the hot son? I don't know. I, I don't know how. I don't know. There's the white son and then the Asian son. Uh, I think that Sean Lennon is Yoko's child, so okay. Sean is the Asian one. Okay. Um, but in any case, like I think that happens a lot with people that are adjacent to geniuses, is that they have to figure out a way in their own lives to just keep being asked about that, because you're always going to be in that shadow. Well, people will always ask about it no matter what. No matter if you do anything on your own, people right. will be like, well, how do you think your relationship with X affect?" I'm like, God fucking damn Like... Except someone like uh, Frances Bean uh, Cobain. She's just like a, a Twitter, like, troll. What was her relation to Kurt? I don't know who that daughter. is. Daughter. Oh, really? Okay. Him and Courtney's daughter. Yeah, okay. Um. So she's, like, actually good at Twitter. Yeah. She's of the... Ge- well, no, she's generation below us. But, yeah, she's, like, Twitter native. And she's like, yeah, I'd love fucking with people. I'm like, okay, great. Good for you. Yeah, that's one way to handle it. Honestly, like just trolling people that are constantly going to annoy you is probably the healthiest possible way oh, to get it around it. Oh, it seems healthy. Rather than basically painting yourself in the public eye as a complete douchebag who's not appreciative of yeah. the genius you've been around in your life, you know? Also, if your mom is Courtney Love, ooh, you got some stories. And like you're just waiting, you're banking them until she kicks it, and then you're like, okay, sweet. So my memoir, going to fucking rock. Yeah. Everybody yeah, yeah. shut up, just wait. Can't wait. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, like with Mary Carr, that actually sounds like a really healthy response to that kind of situation. Just come up with a canned response. Use it every time. And maybe, honestly, people might actually stop asking you at a certain point if they know what they're going to get. Yeah. Because the only reason anybody asks is they're looking for the scoop, you know. Or well, just a soundbite that no one's ever heard before. Or you get, like, a fanboy asking, like, can you tell us anything that he, he held back from readers? And she's like, I don't know. I didn't know at that point. Right. And you're like... Sick, bro. Well, like, like, honestly, if I ever had a chance to talk to Mary Carr, I'd probably only ask her about David Foster Wallace. And it's not to denigrate her. It's just because I don't know or care about anything that she's done. And uh, and to always mm-hmm. look at that as, like, you're being judged as lesser or something, that's not it. It's just that how many times are you one step away from somebody that you really care about that you're fascinated by? You know? She, But she's, like, on the same level as, like, in terms of memoir writing as, like... uh I forgot who wrote the Joy Luck Club. I don't know either. But, like, she's on that level of, like, a memoir can be, like, a really... It can straddle the line of fiction, mystery, and, like, it's, like, penultimate memoir. Not just, like, here's my life story. I grew up in blah. It's, like, gripping. Yeah, sure. You know, and, like, could be... Cin- it's cinematic in the way the Joy Luck Club was then a movie. Right. Um, Which not many people do. Very few people are really good at, like, doing that. Maybe, like, Prozac Nation, what's, Elizabeth Wurzel was like that. Well, maybe. I mean, I, I think one of the trickiest things when it comes to making any kind of art is being able to make, like, the banal and the mundane really profound. And, like, doing memoir 
in terms of literature is kind of like doing a self-portrait in terms of a painting. It's it's simultaneously yeah. like the most hubristic thing you can possibly do, but if you really pull it off, it can really be transcendent because it can say everything at once. It becomes holistic in this whole, like, it en- encompasses the way the whole world works. Well, You're tapping and, into other people. And the way that it works through one subjective lens. Like, yes. it kind of cuts to the quick. You don't get mixed up in, like, politics or history when it's through your eyes. Like, it's a really tight way of objectifying subjectivity sense making in the world yes sure yeah and you know it must be particularly frustrating for like female authors that you keep naming because this is a very male thing like in my mm. mind like uh carl ave nosgaard has the dominion over this right now because he basically blew that up to epic proportions who's gonna read five five books of a chubby white man complaining about his listen life. dude i i will say i've i have yet to read it i probably will at some point but every person i've ever known that read it said it's incredibly addictive and that it's like no problem to read and that it's in- weirdly amazingly engaging i did almost get it for you for like a holiday I was like here here's a white man feeling sorry for himself enjoy i mean i did read the first chapter of it one time and it <laughs> was like incredibly gripping I didn't read the whole book because I just found a PDF on the internet and it's hard for me to read on screens. Um, but if I'd had the book in my hand, I would have bought it. Is it a 6,000 page PDF? It. Jesus Christ. Well, it was just of the first volume. You know, they came out years apart. So you... But even the volumes are like Harry Potter Yeah, style. yeah. They're like 600 pages long. But yeah, <sighs> sure. It was a long PDF. But I just wanted to read it. And like, it was all about like the blood flowing through his veins. Like it starts with some vague memory of him as a youth. That's such a dude thing to do. It's it's very masculine, yeah. But he just describes, like, in all of this incredible detail, the biology of what's going on in one single moment. And I felt like even just through that taste of it, I could, I had a glimpse of where the whole thing would go. You know, <sighs> that's broke in a way that I'm not here for. I don't know. I, I I thought it was sort of classic, like in the same sense that like Uncut Gems starts with that colonoscopy. Like it starts with the mind scene and then but it turns into funny. a colonoscopy. Yeah, there's some there's some humor to it. The twist is you're like, oh, that's an asshole. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like you're like, oh, got it. Um, like there's well, great artists have great senses of humor too. And yeah, like, but but it's just to gesture to that idea that like starting something off. Um, with something really common but also cosmic and like mixing up the difference in scale i think that's a classic device i don't know that's powers of 10 exactly you know which for some reason i've seen like a resurgence of people like let's do it again i'm like you need to not we did it once it was great I don't know. Stop it. Honestly, I'm surprised that that particular video hasn't been revived because of advances in science and technology since then. Like scale oh, actually yeah. a- actually has changed because if I remember correctly, like the smallest that ever goes is like protons and neutrons. But now you could obviously go to quarks and you know speculate even farther. A what? A quark. What the fuck is a quark? The quark quarks are the component parts of the parts of atoms. That's the best name they could come up with. Quark. Yeah, I don't actually know where the name Quark comes from, but is it like Quarty, like the guy who made the typewriter? He's like, ah, Professor Quark, you found it. <laughs> ah, what do you want to name it? Can you name it after me? Mm, no, I don't know. Maybe it's named after the bartender on Deep Space Nine. <sighs> That's definitely the other way around. That's a deep nerd cut right there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That video could be fun to resurrect. Yeah, I mean it's effective it's simple it's like what nine minutes long or they're just like whatever yeah i I remember a funny story about ritter who will be familiar to some of the listeners is that that video like really freaks her out especially when she's stoned she really does not like to think about (laughs) like any anything outside of human scale is like a serious crisis for a stoned ritter that tracks all of us tracks but and I remember like putting it on sometimes to torment her. I don't think why he, would you? <laughs> I don't think I would do it, but like people w- would know that that was a trigger. Steven would do that, and would like try to. She would go to the bathroom, and then you'd like sneak on Powers of Ten instead of whatever YouTube video you were watching, and see how long it would take for her to realize what was going God. on. God, <laughs> oh, my most embarrassing moment is being stoned on the night of Obama's re-election because I got. I oh took, yeah, I was I really a, high and I was playing chess. I remember that. I took a very deep pull on whatever smoking device was being passed in front of me once ohio was like we're calling it for obama i was like 
okay, thank God. And they're like, you're stoned as fuck. I'm like, I don't know how to do this, so okay. It's so funny thinking back to that 2012 election. It's so weird to think, too, that we were in New York at that time, because that seems uh-huh. like so long ago. Like The Obama years in general, I'm like, oh, that's back when I was young. And it's like, oh, shit, not, not really. No, um, but it's so funny how like low stakes and joyous that night was like there was no feeling at all that anybody but Obama would win. And it was called like instantly. It was looking a little nervous, like the robot man was going to win He's, for maybe, a little sort of. But because that's when we all believed uh, Nate Silver. Well, yeah. And that's when Nate Silver got things right instead oh, of yeah. constantly getting everything wrong all the time and being incredibly smug about it. Is but, he still smug? I feel like he ate a shitload of humble pie after a certain No, point. no, no, no. He's back to being smug. I mean, we were talking no. a little bit about this in our mulligan, but, like, all the pollsters are all back on their bullshit thinking that, like, Biden has oh, it boy. in the bag or whatever. But what I was going to say was that it's so funny to contrast that to, like, every election that I've been super invested in, basically, meaning mm-hmm. from 2016 to now. And just That's every— two. Well, yeah. Midterms and stuff, too, to some extent. Oh. But just watching every— Every time watching it with so much anxiety and then the worst possible thing happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that happens almost universally now. Oh, yeah. The the difference between 2012 and 2016, 2012 is, yay, let's enjoy life and get stoned and go wee! And then 2016, well, it's 8 o'clock. I'm going to start drinking because this is not looking great. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was blackout drunk by, like, 10. It was very clear within the first two hours that Donald Trump was going to win. You fell over around 11.15. Yeah, yeah. I rem- The last thing I remember about that night is sending the gif of the end of Toy Story 3 when they're all reaching for each other's hands and falling into the furnace oh, to a group thread. You sent that to snails? Yeah. You sent a- <laughs> How dare you? Good God. Ugh. That's my last conscious memory. Well, that and smoking cigarettes on the stoop and watching our neighbor get taken away because she had a heart attack. Oh, yeah. That was not great. Um, Truth be told, I don't really remember that. I just have photo documentation of that that I look at occasionally. Oh, no. I went up to like uh, her niece and was like, is, she, is T okay? What's going on? Is she okay? She's like, yeah, she's palpitating. I'm like, hmm? she watching the results? She's like, yep. I'm like, okay, great. We're all on the same page, right? Yeah. Oh, she's yeah. like, oh, yeah, you're just... You're drinking. She's having a heart attack. I'm like, uh, okay, good. We're all here together. Yep, yep. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's interesting to think about what the watching experience this year will be like. Because obviously the stakes are really high. I mean, I, like, it's going to be fucked up either way. But I just hope that it's quick. You know what I mean? I hope it's a Band-Aid ripping off situation where it's not some tortured all night long, like, fiasco where it's like 2000 where it's oh, unclear for days what the fuck chats. is going on. But yeah. I have a feeling that that's going to happen because the voting situation is going to be bizarre. Oh, because it's been fucked up for everyone? Well, every state is going to have a different protocol oh, about Jesus who can mail Christ. in, who can't mail in, how many polling places are open, who's on the rolls, who's not on the rolls. Like, it's going to be contested no matter what. what. Have you been looking at the Kansas or Kentucky, one of the K states? I've been up on Kentucky, not Kansas. Is Kentucky the one with uh, Turtle Man Mitch and McConnell, yeah. uh, Angry Air Force Lesbian? And... Yeah, McGrath and Booker. Okay, yes. yeah. Um, and I don't mean that in the pejorative, but I kind of do, because like, she's like, I'm an Air Force lady, and you're like, what? You're happy uh, about this? People, Ma'am. On, people online have taken, taken to calling her Bloodbath McGrath. <laughs> after... <laughs> After the Wild Wild West general. Sorry, I do this every time. I put the headphones on backwards so I can't hear anything. Oh. And now I can because, you know, this side's a little fucked up. Mm, Yeah, you want to blame the last hour on having your headphones on backwards? Yes. That'd be pretty on brand. (laughs) I didn't know! Um, Yeah, so that's today too, right? Yes, yes. I actually, I wonder what's going on with that. Hmm. Are you able to fill some air while I get a live update? Just open your phone, bro. We don't don't have to fill air. Eh, We kind of do. I can fill air. I do want to In this case, we do because we should mention we have the air conditioner on and it's uh, fireworks hour. Oh, yeah. It's World War 16 outside. Yeah. It sounds Um, like 1916 on the fucking Somme right now. (laughs) uh, I mean, we at least get to see the tracers. It's fun. Um, I do want to talk... 
it was the fireworks yesterday did scare me because I was uh, I was playing Breath of the Wild uh, after I beat it just for funsies, and I finally did that, and it was very heartbreaking, and I almost cried. Oh man, uh, that's really the end of an era. You've been working on that for weeks. You hundred percented the game. Oh no, that's impossible. Oh, okay. Um, you have to find nine hundred golden poops, and I'm not I'm not here for that. Um, hmm. All right. Well, anyway, come on. I'm not doing that. I'm not a completionist. Okay. I just want to like look around and it wasn't enjoy. that it was really more than 900 golden poops thing you have to find little woodland me. creatures that give you a golden poop and um, then they let you uh expand your weapons arsenal you know if we're gonna like foreign intervene in other countries i think we need to start in japan the golden their poop sexual is... politics around children and animals is not good i'm just gonna say that they also have the phallic fountains which i'm here for get it who wouldn't want that? Okay. Oh, damn it. Right now it looks like uh, Bloodbath McGrath is uh, about to win that primary in oh, Kentucky. Boy. By a healthy margin. She's got a 10% lead as of uh, 938. Didn't she spend like a billion dollars? I'm sure she did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's Kentucky. It was. It, it's always unlikely that the more left candidate's going to win. And in any case, it doesn't matter because they're not going to beat Mitch McConnell. So oh, good boy. luck. Yeah. Well, that's also the place where like voting was like voting stations were whittled whittled down to nothing oh yeah okay 95 percent of them were closed (sighs) because we care about coronavirus unless we need to get flipping dippers from applebee's in which case we don't the fuck is a flipping dipper i don't know that sounds delicious i don't know what it is (laughs) but i I don't know what it is but i'd like to eat the whole thing (laughs) yeah (laughs) is it like okay i can imagine what this is so on one side it's a potato skin, but if you flip it over, it's like a crusty, like they fused a potato skin and like a chicken tendy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you flip it if you want like the potato skin with like some sour cream and then, so you dip that and then you flip it and hit the honey musty with the chicky tendy. I was going to say, I'm imagining that it's served with like a flight of different sauces that Hell you, can, yeah. you can flip and dip to each side of your tray, depending on which... Appy, you're going for man you, you have a you have a career in this why don't you become a consultant for uh fast casual dining and invent things like this there's already fatties doing this so they don't need me well you know okay don't do no <laughs> you're getting there <laughs> i mean <sighs> that'd be so funny the job requirement is you must weigh 300 pounds they're like must be able to finish two pound burger <laughs> oh I in a never, single seat no. um i mean <sighs> Listen, if you did not, as a youth, go to happy hour after 10 p.m. where it was all appetizers half price after 10 p.m. in the middle of Ohio, I don't want to hear from you. Are you talking about Applebee's now in particular? Yeah. Yeah, I think I did that on a couple of occasions. Although I have to say, man, uh, well, we did an episode at Olive Garden, but Olive Garden and Applebee's to me are absolutely bottom of the barrel. I oh, can to- it's bad. I can yeah. tolerate like a lot of chain fast casual like that, but honestly, Applebee's and Olive Garden, ah, uh, that's really tough. It's that's bad. the worst yeah. of the worst. Ruby Tuesday was the worst. I, I didn't have that much experience with Ruby Tuesday. I remember having a watery salad there. Oh, they had a point. salad bar still. Oh, okay, maybe that's why. Mm. Um, no, I was listening there. Uh, David Chang does a podcast, and he was talking to a restaurant owner, a Korean restaurant owner in Minneapolis who runs like two pizza places and then this other like fusion place. And it almost made me cry on the beach because she was, she did this long. Why? Because the food sounded so delicious and you didn't have ready access to it. Well, that's part of it. (laughs) But the other part was like, she was like getting, you know, in the early part of June, she was getting like, attacked on all sides like not attacked on all sides but like you need to say something what are you gonna do what and she's like i am trying to figure out how to save my business and the people who work for me because i you know that's the family that i built also i know where i live and i know who i am but the quote that she said was i'm not white i'm not from here give me time like uh-huh. and it was like it, it like you know you could hear the like on the verge of tears like kind of like I need to figure out what makes sense for me to say ever as a person, as a restaurateur. Like, there, she was, like, going through it 
on a pod, and I was like, whoa. Like, because you don't hear that. Like, normally you have a manicured response to PR stuff. Like, you have terrible, like, we stand with you or whatever fuckery. Or, like, you get a gay pride t-shirt with a, like, embroidered dick on it. I did see, and I do want the hat. Um, (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? Dad hat with an embroidered eggplant? Sure, yeah. The eggplant emoji with the little splooge. No splooge. Okay. That's a special. That's you more have to subtle. Add it on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but like to have someone like really be like, I'm emotional. I care about where I am. I care about my my people and my city. But like, don't ask me to respond right right away. Right, right. I don't know yet. Well, we talked about this a little bit when the when the stuff in Minneapolis within days of it popping off, there was that Indian restaurant owner. Oh, the guy yeah. whose uh, son, down. Yeah. son tweeted something to the effect that his father said, like, um, you know, they can burn my restaurant down. Like what the cops are doing is wrong or whatever. And the most bizarre and worst implication of that is now it's pretty likely that the insurance claim on his restaurant would not be validated because he responded in that way on the record. Oh, I don't know if that's true because... Well, wait, 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 let me finish, because I'm not sure that it's true either, but okay. if that's even slightly true, and I bet that it is, my hunch would be that, yeah, you don't want to record a response like that before your claim has gone through, because you have said something which m- makes your intention suspect in the eyes of an insurer. Yeah. And now I'm not saying that that's right, but I guarantee you that's legally right, and that the insurer would use that if they caught wind of oh, it. Legally, it's fuckery, but in terms of contracts, like insurance is just a contract and there are like when i was in finance um if something happened as like an like this falls under act of god or civil unrest you're not covered they don't cover that they're like i don't know we couldn't predict it so no right 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 um well my own my only reason for mentioning that is that it is really admirable um or vulnerable of that restaurateur the korean one that you mentioned to just say what she said and sort of back off a little bit because there is a lot of social pressure to have a take. Yeah. Um, Cause she won a James Beard award and there's really, there's really nothing responsible about that on some yeah. level. You no. can think about it legally or practically or spiritually or sociologically. It's you, yeah. You should think about what the fuck you say before you say it. Yeah. And it's also like, she's thinking about like the fear is I have to protect my business because that, in turn, keeping that whole protects her employees from being without a job. You know, like there's sure. a lot, of, like there's yeah, yeah. trickle downs and stuff like that. And like, you know, most of the conversation was about being upset that like with the onset of COVID, like to bring it back to Applebee's, she's like, I don't want to go back to a situation where we all fail, meaning small businesses. Sure. And then it's just chains. Cause that exists. That time did exist. It's called the eighties. You know, like yeah, well, in nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. I mean, it's a relatively recent thing in terms of restaurants, specifically in small cities. Yeah, yeah. Right. like in in New York, you always have everything. Sure, we know that. But like, you know, when something like even like Lucky Strike is closed forever, I'm like, I'll never have steak fritz on Spring Street ever again. Right. I might cut it. Like that's where Madonna was a server there. Like oh, that's wow. how, that's how old that restaurant was. Like. Right. And I'm lucky that I got to go there, but like, well, shit. Like, I don't want to go to Spring Street and be like, oh, there's a Panera instead of a Dean DeLuca. Like, even Dean DeLuca's a chain, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. No, I like, know I don't want to do like, oh, Delicatessen's dead. So like, well, we've talked off the off the podcast about um, the decline of Cafe Habana, and I don't know the like specific circumstances of that but there was a really good cuban restaurant for a while like 10 years ago that was hot delicious cuban food and it sort of declined in quality over over time because of its popularity right Mm, pretty it was just like margin like margins had to be higher well okay great yes this is exactly where i'm going with this is i could imagine a situation where small businesses of any ilk um their margins get thinner than they already are and even if they survive they need either backing from somebody larger that compromises their quality or they have to compromise their own quality involuntarily to keep up with thinning margins. Yeah. And her whole thing is she's like, I'm a good Korean. I maxed out all my credit cards. I don't have angel investors. Right. I was like, huh. 
Damn, bitch. Yeah, like, uh, good uh, on you, because that's insane. But. There was an interesting interview on Rogan with the uh, chef and the owner of Felix in L.A. I think yeah. I told you about this, but they were saying a very similar thing, which was like, we're doing our best to stay open, but I think their profit margin was something like 14%, which is very high for a restaurant, but low for businesses 4% in general. 4% higher than normal restaurants. You're right. But it is very low in general, and the the problem that the owner was having was she was saying, like, well, the success of my business relies on reinvesting my money. Yeah. So when coronavirus hit, it's not like I had money in the bank. I was trying to build another five restaurants yeah. that are all now in jeopardy before yeah. they ever get off the ground, as well as my existing ones, because I don't have any capital. Yeah. The only way, and I think this is true of businesses across the board, is the only way that razor-thin margins can continue to work is if you continue to reinvest. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, large conglomerates don't do that. They hoard and buy back their own stock and things like yeah. that. But on a small scale, that's the only way to survive. Well, this is like the person who owns Squirrel yeah. uh, in L.A. was like, like she's like a type A business person. Like she knows. Yeah, she even restaurant food, owners like, are business people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> like they're really successful if they know what they're doing. This is why like Christina Tosi is like the penultimate like, yeah, I'm a really good baker, but actually I'm like a really good like. I'm really good at reading the law and figuring out this shit. Right. Like, that's her whole thing. She's like, no, no, no I got that. Fuck you if you think you're going to get one on us and charge us, like, cite us. Try me. Yeah. Um, But, like, her her whole thing was like, no, we were trying to build out the catering wing because that just, oh, high margins out the board. You're just paying huge sums. Sure. And you're getting all of that back that you can reinvest in opening another restaurant or whatever. Like, right, yeah. And her whole thing was like, you can't be a daytime restaurant only anymore. No, you can't. She's like, no, it, Squirrel will have to turn into like an evening restaurant to get higher price covers at, yeah, at yeah. night. And I'm like, she's like, I don't want to do that because I don't want to work all day. Because if you have a breakfast and lunch spot, you're like, yeah, get in at four in the morning and leave at fucking two o'clock. Who cares? Right, or you're in the position where now you have to hire employees, which thins, thins your margins even more. You have two shifts. Because if you want to be a good person, yeah. you're going to pay them right. right, which, you know. Yeah, there was a similar discussion with the Felix people where it was like, now they're having to do takeout because of coronavirus, but they had never had a takeout setup. They're yeah. like a fine dining restaurant that was forced to figure out another menu mm-hmm. and all of this stuff that basically like the investors in the restaurant have to do for free. Yeah. Um, and hopefully they can like keep a couple hangers on, but you know, we've talked about this before, but you imagine that spread across every business everywhere. Yeah. And this kind of consolidation that's going to come, it is going to be kind of weird, man. You're going to see a lot of the same brand names that you had before, but hollowed out basically like kind of like what Trump does where it's just the license of the name and then the quality of the thing is whatever it is. Well, not to besmirch my former employer, but that's what what J crew has been trying to do since 2017 licensing like the the name and the objects are two different entities now the well, equity is not in the stuff yeah it's in the it's name a, it's in the name and a lot of time what people will do is they will agree to purchase the name and then they'll just bury it it's not yeah. as if they'll start branding a j crew line of clothing yeah. they'll just bury that name so they have one less competitor yeah or or it's like well we can put it up we can put the same shit out, but put it on this other name, charge $2 more, fuck it. Who cares? Oddly, I was w- reading about this in terms of peanut butter the other day. I go on weird Wikipedia dives, and I was huh. reading about the, <laughs> the history of peanut butter and peanut butter companies. And the original peanut butter company that was like around from the late 19th century until the 80s was called Sheds. Never and like, I had never uh, heard of Sheds. Shed spread? Uh, it was just called Sheds Peanut Butter. Huh. And its gimmick was that it came in a bucket. So Ew. that people could reuse the bucket for, like, sand pails or whatever. It's very, like, Depression-era thinking. How big is this vat of fucking peanut butter? It was like pretty little... big. It was like a gallon of peanut Jesus, butter. Jesus, that's so much. But the, the thing that happened to Sheds is exactly what I described, which is they just got bought by Skippy or somebody, mm. completely buried the name, and that company that was iconic, I guess, for, yeah. for people, just doesn't exist at all anymore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, this will kind of happen... Well, this already started happening in culture and art. Like, Marlboro is closing. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's crazy. The uh, home family in Britain was like, shut it down. While, like, the matri- or the patriarch of the American side was in the hospital with COVID. 
Oh, geez. So they like ousted the whole branch. They're like, shut it down. Wow, wow. And they're like, uh, we did not want to do this because we own so much fucking property. Like, it's actually, we're fine. Right. But I, maybe we can do some follow up on this on a future episode because I think Brad Trammell just put out a video about, oh, yeah. about this. And I'm really curious. Oh, it's maybe, one you have to yeah. pay for, but I'm very curious what What's he five dollars. Yeah. I'm very curious what he has to say um, in this regard. Well, there's some suspicion because the building that was in the Kime Reed building, right, which got, you know, whatever the fuck gallery moved in afterwards that then had their own bicker fight that closed. Um, On the lease or the deeds or whatever, Time and Reed are listed as buyers and sellers. So, like, it's some kind of fuckery of money transfer. Hmm. So, I'm like, what are you all doing? First of all, how do you know that? Internet, baby. Uh-huh. Artnet or Art News. One of them was like, okay, so we looked into this and this is fuckery. Well, it sounds like, like oh. to me, they probably just own the space. They own the building. I think they do. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Or they're trying to buy back that, I don't know. There, it was a... Str- like they sold it for zero dollars or something like that, but they leased it from uh, Reed or Kime for two hundred and fifty. But then that got canceled, so they still paid them. The de- it was like, are you guys just floating? Yeah, stuff? I mean, like, I don't, I don't, I don't it understand. It doesn't sound like either of us know the details enough to describe it well. But like, you know, so I don't want to get into the weeds of it too much. Yeah. But it does sound like it, you know, it could be some sort of nefarious like wealth transfer scheme, but. It also sounds like maybe they just own the building and they're trying desperately not to have to sell it to an uh, outside party. Yeah. So they're the partners are buying it back and forth from each other as a means f- of keeping it somehow. Or it becomes... I don't know enough about how you can do that. Well, no, Marlboro was buying it and they were selling it back and forth between the two parties. So I wonder if it becomes this kind of like equity branding thing. Like, we'll buy Kime Reed as Marlboro. Sure, yeah. And yeah. we get your people and your building. Yeah, or we basically just get your real estate and we'll do whatever it's we a want sterling, with it. It's like a Sterling, du- sterling Duper. Sterling Cooper or Draper Price, like umbrella of McCann. Mm-hmm. Like, you will still get to be autonomous, but we're going to give you a shitload of money. We get your space and your people, and then you can still kind of program-ish. Sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you but mean. But you're not... Uh, profits funnel up to us, not just you. Yeah, it's back to any industry. I mean, I think yeah. you're going to just... That's the consolidation. You're going you're gonna to see a lot of that everywhere. Like, when are we going to see, like, you know, uh, Rachel Uffner, a Gagosian brand? I think you're going to see a lot of that soon. Yeah, or for sure. Closer would be, like, a Werner brand, because what's his face from Torres and. Well, whatever, but especially with the collapse of art fairs and all of this stuff getting canceled, as onerous as those are in terms of fees, and, like, you know, they're basically like. MLMs for art galleries yeah. but um with those going away like I don't really see how smaller galleries could maintain international collector bases oh, like people there's are just... still making money from those there's millions of dollars still flying well sure they're going to do them virtually and yeah. stuff but I'm just saying like I don't know that that whole infrastructure has always been so precarious anyway and the profit margins are not as big as people imagine oh no um so if a booth is in total, after all the costs, is $500,000 and you sell $2 million worth of stuff, is it worth it? I don't know. Well, it, it, You're not coming out the, that much The ahead. only reason that people end up doing it is because, yeah, that is worth it. I mean, that's a 75% gain on, on your investment. And, like, that pays your bills for a year because in the, me- in the meantime, you're not selling anything or very little. Mm-hmm. Like the art, the art fair is bringing collectors to one location where they're very yeah. compelled to buy because it's like the stock market where suddenly um, demand is heightened artificially by the presence of other collectors in the same room. But it's like rich people farmers market. You're like, oh, well, the good stuff's here. Might as well stock up. Well, like, yeah, what? but, but th- that's huh? actually a really instructive example because that's the same way that farmers markets function. The only reason that the honey is $20 is, yeah, it's artisanal and a lot goes into it, but it's because there's only seven or eight jars of it that if you don't get there at 8.30 in the morning are going to be gone. You're not going to get it, yeah. It's, it's artificial supply and demand. Ugh. I hate the world. It, I, uh, it's bad. Well, it, I don't know. It, it it's very it's very strange because there's a there's this whole discourse right now around like zombie markets. Um, KS what? 
Meaning like things things that are staying afloat along the principles that we just described. Mm-hmm. Like as the old infrastructure decays, there's still enough brand equity and mm-hmm. liquid capital to keep things alive for a while. Yeah. That's why this, this, this is one of the possible theories for why the stock market keeps going up and up and up this year for the most part. Yeah. With occasional downward turns is that nobody is buying or investing on the long term everybody has become enculturated to think in terms of short-term investment only in every industry because of these small profit margins that make that a necessity it's turning icons into junk bonds yes so that way you can liquidate actual assets by the name but when the infrastructure of these zombified markets eventually does evaporate which it Mm -hmm. inevitably will um there's nothing left. Like brand equity yeah. doesn't mean anything without actual capital behind it at a certain yeah. point. Yeah. I mean, the, in I'll speak in terms of one thing that I know pretty well. In terms of fashion, this has happened forever. These names are not going to mean anything to you, but Halston, 80s, icon. Like that's like, imi- like there are pictures of Halston taken by Warhol. Like the it's 70s, 80s, like high big shoulder pads glossy fuckery sure sure i'm with you uh he dies or somehow lose i don't know i don't remember what happened but estate or he sells the name and now it's just like a shitty sale brand at macy's right and then you're like grandma why do you have halston the fuck is this huh or you have uh like jill sander at Uniqlo for $35. You're like, the fuck? Oh, you're just licensing the name, Jill Sander. Yeah. No one is actually designing for this. Got it. Okay, it's just like a look akin to a Jill Sander. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you say that, at least in fashion or the industries you're familiar with, this is the way it's been forever. It's like, well, but then you point right to the 80s. It's not the way that it's been forever, but it has been this way for four years. Yeah, but like if you think about... You know, you know what Pac Pac is, right? Do you remember that restaurant? Yes. He closed all but one or two of his restaurants in Portland, and was like, "I don't think I'll be able to survive this." To be honest, like we need to do so much for our employees, for our customers. Like, you know, you shouldn't be able to pay what you pay for what we're serving you. To be, but I imagine a future where Pac Pac is bought by Darden. Yeah, because at a certain point, he's going to be so deeply in Ricker's going to be so deeply in debt that he'll be like fuck it sell it to some conglomerate and then you're just going to have pock pock drive throughs yeah you're going yes exactly you're going to have a lot of that I mean we're going in circles a little bit here but like but... culture like niche things that we grew up with as like actually being special are going to just be homogenized yes and from high culture to low culture which is weird High culture is just going to be like your branch of Kogosian's Werner or Pace. Yeah, well, exactly. But you know what's not that weird about that is a thought experiment I heard once that I really like is if you look around any room that you're in, you can do it right now, and I invite the listener at home to do it in whatever room they're in. If you do you're that... You're sitting in a room. And then you subtract all the screens, how do you know you're not in 1973? Well, that candle is actually pretty... 2016 well okay i like i i understand that there are obvious criticisms of this in terms of minor aesthetic things yeah but we've talked about that on here before too where even like aesthetics hasn't really advanced that much that candle or the ikea shelves or whatever are kind of just a riff on pre-described styles done more cheaply yeah like the only tell for the era that you live in is that the quality of everything has been has declined and been distilled Yes. Right. And like when we're talking about all this economics, whether it's restaurants or fashion or whatever, what that leads a lot of people to believe, myself included, is that like we've actually lived in a really stagnant era for 40 or 50 years and there's been no advancement at all. Yet advancement's been described, uh, sorry, like circumscribed by lowering the price. Yeah. I mean, Poor whipping boy the couch. Let's just throw this out there real quick. So it's a wafer couch. Let's be real. It costs $450. I don't know. That couch takes the aesthetics of mid-century modern-ish. I'm being generous because it doesn't. Because it has a chaise lounge attachment. In that era, no. 
you would not do that. That didn't exist. That's the only thing that makes it contemporary because like everyone's like, well, we have a square room. We need to put a long thing. And it's like, well, you know, it's also wrong because it's too short for anyone to actually lounge fully on it. It's too short. Like scale matters. Well, yeah, it's primarily designed for really tiny apartments. Yeah. Because the real estate market is under the same conditions that all of these other markets are. And it's not in the same... Fuck, I forgot his name. Like, there's a a designer, P, starts with a P. Anyway, like, those fucking couches are 110 inches long and mostly unusable space because they have, like, wings and shit. Sure. And you're like, well, they're beautiful, but, like... That's for square footage well, in the you, 60s. You could, you, could sacrifice, you could sacrifice some amount of your design to decadence when there was space and quality. Yeah. Because you I'm, can't do that at a certain point. Well, because those were designed for suburbs, not homes. Sure. Not apartments. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, you know. exactly. Um, well, I mean, the, the real question of all of this to me is at, at some point it seems like all of that lying— about stagnation mm-hmm. and all of that outsourcing of things to the third world to drive prices down won't function anymore. And no. we're already seeing it. The pandemic was an obvious thing when supply chains and stuff like that gets dis- yeah. uh, disrupted. But like when China and India have a growing middle class that will be bigger than the United States and they no longer have a need to service foreign countries nor a desire because we're in debt to them so mm. hard. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point it seems like all of that would run out. Yeah. And well, I'm not saying that that's coming soon, but that's something that's on my mind in terms of any kind of life plan you want to make. It's something to keep in mind because you don't know it's not as if the United States will be in like a civil war or disappear in the next 100 years, but the form it's going to take is like a decaying empire like Portugal or Spain after the age of exploration. Something like that. Well, the weird part is like we can never be a fabrication country because we got rid of all that. Yeah, we got rid of it. We can't even make something as simple as an N95 mask, let alone Polaroid film or anything but weapons, really. Fucking jeans. Yeah. A pair of North Carolina milled and sewn shit, $300. And you're like, I can't pay for that. No, Well, yeah, and I, I heard an interview with a maker of boots one time. Which ones? I don't remember the brand. I don't think you would know them because they were like sort of like hunting or like tactical things. They were not. Um, I know all brands. I don't remember what God the damn. brand's called, but. Was it Danner? They're made in. Well, it was a, it was a, um, excuse me. It was a uh, made in America company. And the guy was describing how it was actually difficult to get production off the ground in the United States because the only people left that knew the process were in their 70s or 80s, and they had to investigate who these people were, where they lived, and then through money, coax them to reteach young people how to even do this. Yeah, And the same thing applies to film. That's why I mentioned Polaroid before. Recipes get lost. Well, because we also know Kodak, when the Kodak, you remember the Kodak panic? Yeah. When, like, the last assembly line was like, (gasps) we're closing, and everyone's like, buy all the film now. Buy all the Polaroid that you can get. Because you're never going to see it again. Yeah, they de- that was the impossible. They project. deaccessioned all of their equipment, which yeah. was completely unique. That it's not like a machine that there is more than one or two of. No, yeah, yeah. It, insane. Um, and that was that's recent history. That was like 2008. Yeah, yeah, it was um, that's, that recently. Now we're dealing with a thing where uh, a company like Brooks Brothers, who's been in business since the 1800s, sure, is now looking because their whole thing is like suits. And the Oxfords, made in America, whatever. And they're like, well, that might have to go away. And there's, uh, I don't remember if it's in one of the Carolinas, where like a whole city is based on working at the shirt factory. Right. And they're like, they have to stay in business, otherwise we are a dead city. Well, yeah, I mean, that's been happening all across the United States, again, since yeah. the 70s, really. is like, that's what industrialized economies do. I mean, it has negative effects, too. That's how you end up with company towns yeah, in the sense that you're describing, but also in the more nefarious sense where basically all of bureaucracy is privatized and yeah. now you're talking about script or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sure. I mean, that's how things have to be organized, seemingly, is that th- that local capacity, not only to support a community, but to distribute on a regional level mm-hmm. is important. And we don't have that infrastructure 
at all anymore. No, cause, well, let's let's circle back. Remember, you know, you're from Ohio. You know, Key Bank. Sure. Does it exist anymore? I think it does. Yeah. Does it exist in the way that it did when it could buy F one eleven? No. No, definitely not. Where's F one eleven? Fucking MoMA. Like they had to sell all their sh- like that was like a a big company. It, it's uh, akin to like Goldman Sachs and like. Well, it's not akin to massive that. Massive Julie Murray to it's, it's It's not exactly akin to that because things like Goldman Sachs displaced regional banks. Yeah, regional banks exist to a certain extent now, like my dad works for one, but it went from a regional bank that serviced like Pittsburgh and Erie to a regional bank that services the entire Midwest. Yeah, that's true. Probably yeah. as a subsidiary of something uh, else, yeah. Bear Stearns or something. So, like, yeah, that kind of thing has happened everywhere. But it eliminates quality because at, at a certain scale, you can no longer pay attention to local needs. And that goes for aesthetics as much as it goes for anything else. Well, local needs, not, e- not even in terms of your actual local, but like your national local. And because it's all about yeah. global sure. okay, uh, profit. Right. Hollywood movies are a perfect example where now everything must be designed to cater to China. There can be no mention of Taiwan or Nepal. Or like, yeah. you know, th- this happened in the, in the stupid Doctor Strange movie. What? It was that is supposed to take place in Tibet, but they transferred it to Nepal because you can't make mention of oh, yeah, Tibet right. in a yeah. movie to get it screened in China. That's right. Yeah. <sighs> Uh, Matt Chrisman from Chapo has this interesting speculation that like eventually the United States and China will actually merge. <gasps> um, I think it's a little bit flawed because similar arguments were made like before both world wars that like, oh, war can't happen because there's too much money at stake. Yeah. So they'll figure out another solution. Oh, yeah. And I feel like this theory is riding that line. But the idea would be that like bureaucratically the United States and China would actually merge. They would maintain their national identities, maybe not their cultural ones. Um, but bureauc- bureaucratically, they would have to cooperate in a way to avoid war with each other. So if all the manufacturing is going to take place in China and we're going to be your major market, why not just actually have those governments talk better, talk better yeah, than be in constant like bluster with each other? Well, because like what... At this point, what what can America like? Does you know? I said this in jest earlier when you had your voting snafu, but like I was like, America's terrible. It's like, unfortunately, that's actually true. Like we can't do anything for ourselves other than like watch computers trade stocks. Right. That's all New York is good for. And now we're just like, oh, we don't even have to be here for that. Right. Well, this you know the scary implications of something like a hypothetical U.S.-China merger are like that. The white-collar people in the United States that are the ones that do UI and UX and watch the stock printer go burr, they'll basically maintain their lifestyle and their jobs. But, like, for the any downward, downwardly mobile people like you or I or people that have always been working class, we would just get absorbed into the Chinese model, which is basically you have no freedom at all mm. and no workers' rights in any capacity. Well. That would be sort of an arrangement, I think, between the two governments to get things to function. You see it in that American factory documentary when the Chinese buy an American factory. Well, I can explain, like I'm sure listeners haven't either, Mm. that like when the Chinese come over here, they're stunned at the degree of undiscipline amongst the American workers and try to applique the Chinese model onto them by bringing Chinese employees and managers over. And long story short, they basically can't pull it off. Oh yeah, no. Uh this they have to accept like lower quality and less efficient production as a means of investing in the United States, but that disincentivizes them from doing so. From what I know in the world, in my world, Uniqlo has this problem, Japanese company, but yeah. in Soho that whole building is also like a US headquarters. So there are people from Japan who live and work or live here and work up there and they like they fight with the American workforce, like running their floors and doing ops because they're like, can't you just do it this way? Why aren't they doing it right? And they're like, cause they don't care. They're like why they should care. They're, they have job. Right. I don't mean to do that in that like broken English thing, but like, thank you oh, boy. But that is the thing. They're just like, can you just get it right? And they're like, I don't know. They don't try that hard. And they're like, cause we're not paying them that much. They live in new. And they're like, we're paying them, period. 
Right. That's how they look. And it's at like, it. yeah. oh, like there would be, fu- I don't know. This is also coming from like a problematic source, but like, you know, they, people would speak in uh, Japanese to each other in front of like high ranking American folks. And they'd be like, can you wait? You can't. We have to know what you're saying. Right. Which is a very American thing of like, if you're working on a high tier for a Japanese company, you'd maybe like try and like Duolingo that. You should that. learn serviceable like, yeah, business like, Japanese yeah, if, if you're, you're an executive. Yes, of yeah, course. But they wouldn't. They'd right. be like, speak some English. And you're like, okay, so you fucked up already. Like, you don't even know what you're doing. Well, yeah. I mean, I was sort of gesturing that to that before. Like, you can imagine our governmental bureaucracy and our white-collar workers basically selling the rest of the population and the country's infrastructure wholesale to China because they wouldn't be able to communicate a good deal in the first place. Like, to use that very basic example. They wouldn't understand the cultural interchange even if they spoke the language. At best, they'd be speaking through interpreters. Like, and that's just one level of that problem. The major, like, horrifying result of that is that, like, they're just trying to save face. Those executives get to keep their job whether they speak Japanese or not. Mm. The same thing would be true of the wholesale, like, um, casting off of a nation, you know, to serfdom to another nation. Government bureaucrats would maintain their elite status, as would their voting base. That's what's scary about the upcoming election is, like, the way that the voting patterns have shifted and it's clearer and clearer that like the working class coalition doesn't mean anything and that it's really just suburbanites and white collar workers that decide elections. Well, they would be the first to sign on to this deal too, because it requires it's required for them to maintain their middle-class status. Yeah. Like it, it seems like a very logical thing to happen. Well, Americans are stubborn though. Like, that's why these motherfuckers want more masks to go out in yeah. states across this, the country where people are like, well, cases are rising, but fuck you, I'm not wearing a mask. And you're like, can you just do that so we can get on with this? Because we currently can't travel to the European Union. Right. They well, said, which we predicted yesterday. Yeah. They were like, no, no, Americans, no. No you travel. Can't co- yeah. you, you can't come here. No, thank you. Because you fuck botched this so hard. And it's like, come on. I haven't left any. I haven't done anything. Right. <laughs> I only sucked one dick. I mean, come on. Oh, jeez. You know, it's that. But it's like. It's not like you're going to Saudi Arabia. Then they'll just throw you off a building. Well, or Poland. Apparently Poland. Oh, boy. Yeah, Poland's a little dicey now, too. Hungary probably also. But I want fucking pierogies. Can I have. Okay, fine. Well, that's anyway. basically an American thing anyway. <laughs> but it, it's a. Uh, it's funny that the Japanese came up before in terms of this conversation because um, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Hmm. I've always been fascinated by like Japan in general, but especially Japan in the 19th and first half of the 20th century, like Imperial Japan. Is this where your tank comes from? Yes. We haven't talked about your tank on the pod. No, I know. We can save it for another time. Oh. I'm building an uh, IJA Haigo Type 95 light tank. 1 to 35 scale right now. I'm almost done by the way. I'll post it on Instagram. But it's cute. It's little. It's got a little it's got a little boomstick and like some, some wheels. <laughs> a little boomstick, yeah. Um but I've I've always liked Imperial Japan because there was a unique set of historical circumstances mostly surrounding their like nationalism and isolation that led them to have a very strangely like rigorous and unique culture in all of the world. There's no cultural sensibility like the Japanese. They have a weird, well, they don't need more, but they had a weird system of government. They had a weird uh, protocol of how to interact with each other that had to do with various religions overlapping, various transitions from feudalism to capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. What I think is. Shinto stuff is wildly interesting, by the way. Shinto stuff is very cool. I mean, that basically was a state bastardization of Buddhism yeah. that redirected it towards the monarchy. It was it was an interesting... It was more... I thought it was always more a little more nature-based, like a little more Gaia kind of style. Where it was well, like, there's like multiple... Ga- it's a it's a polytheistic religion and stuff, yeah. and, and I think it did have like a legitimate incarnation, but during the Meiji Restoration, like coming out of Japan being ruled by a shogunite... Uh, um, the restoration of the monarchy, they sort of warped Shintoism yes. as uh, oh, 
away from being like a tribal religion and centralized it into worship for the emperor. But then it, in the contemporary, it kind of shifted back to be because those temples become tourist sites. Now. Yeah, I mean, I don't so think it becomes that, like, oh, we're going to the god of the mountain. Yeah. I, I don't think that Shintoism is really practiced in Japan anymore. It's a lot no, like Christianity no. in the United yeah. States where there's a lot of lip service and like culture uh, paid to it, but no real like belief anymore. But anyway, that kind of relates to what I was trying to get at, which is I think it's really interesting what you said about Americans being stubborn, because I think our weird confluence of historical forces have also made individuals made America into a strange place with a very unique culture in the world right now. Yeah, that is both like fiercely nationalistic to some people, but not nationalistic to others, fiercely individualistic in general. I think the American writ large hates the idea of community totally yes agreed like that's like it it doesn't exist outside of like this is speaking from new york where you're just like you're a new yorker who gives like you know like that badge of honor is so valued that you're like yes i will fuck anyone else up who tries to like fuck up my neighborhood or whatever you know like that that's very different but like you you go to flyover country and you're like no i get what's mine and you're like what well, I give a shit. It's because America is like 11 or 12 distinct nations, actually. Yeah. So people on the East Coast are like mass holes and take a lot of pride in that, or they're New Yorkers and take a lot of pride in that, whether they're transplants or not. Yeah. The same can be said for like West Coast people in California. Oh, yeah. There's a very Pacific Northwestern identity that's really latched onto. We're but, weird. And you're like, okay, can you not? But it's an interesting historical circumstance. It's not, you know, the Japan example is really strained because their culture is very singular and homogenous where ours is exactly inverted from that it's not homogenous at all but there uh, is like a singular individualism and anti-community streak let me, that would make us hard to conquer let I me think. clarify this there's a lot of homogeneity not really this is why we love to sur- to bring it back we love chain restaurants that's our jam that's our gift to the world well the homogeneity of american culture is corporate culture Yes. But it has nothing. But that's very unique in human history because that has nothing to do with national identity, really. No. Yeah. National identity is corporate identity. Yeah. And other than that, like you define yourself by your region or by your race, basically. Which is. Hmm. Or some subset of both of those things. Like yeah. a Puerto Rican from the Bronx is a very specific thing. That's very different from a yeah. Puerto Rican in Florida. You know? Also, depending on what. On the eastern but side they or might, the western side right, of the Bronx. But they might have solidarity with each other in yeah. a way that a white person from Florida and a Puerto Rican from the Bronx don't have at all. Oh, no. And I don't think you can say that about many other cultures. Like, you know, New World places like Canada are sort of similar because you have, like, the Quebecois and then the rest of Canada and their Inuit populations that ha- are slightly divided. Oh, they're very divided. The, mm, the, Canada has a indigenous population schism that you know but the way There's, they oh the boy. way they pay deference to it as a nation is do they? yeah they do i mean mm. they they do like ceremonies before public presentations that are like asking for forgiveness of the native population for doing this on their land and that's like that's like a matter of law wow and it seems to me that like i'm sure that there's right-wing canadians that reject that but did justin trudeau ask for forgiveness but when he did blackface um maybe yeah I mean, basically, he, basically, he gave the most dudes rock response of all time when he was like, "Listen, I just used to be really into costumes. Okay, I'm sorry. I know that it's wrong now, but he's like, I loved Aladdin. I was basically, like, uh... I was basically a theater kid. Yes, I blew the grip too. Justin, Justin, you're still on mic. Cut his mic. <laughs> <laughs> theater kid. Oh boy. But anyway, yeah, it's a handies in theater. No beach. I just, I don't know. I wanted to throw that, I wanted to throw that kind of theory out there that our culture might end up saving us as bad as it seems right now um, to lighten the mood a little bit. Because I do think, <laughs> honestly, because I do think we're in for some really dark times, but like America's a really unique place right now in a way that's different from 1945, in a way that's different from 1968. Um, so whatever's coming, like, yeah, like, Dig into that Applebee's aesthetic, and it, it might be, save us. Is it going to be aliens? It well, would it be already, cool it if it was, was aliens, aliens but so, yeah. I don't know. That's too convenient. That's too easy. Huh. Murder Hornets already got passed over, so. 
Yeah, you don't need to pay attention to any of this stuff. Just I just know. remember where you came from, folks. And when everything falls apart, I'm going to go back to the solemn kingdom of the Midwest. Parmageddon? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Title of up. Um, God. I... Ugh, no, I'm I'm dreading my trip to the Midwest. I'm like, I only go there to eat things that I like, and I can't do that. Fuck. You know you're going to. I'm not going to eat in a restaurant. I'm not insane. Oh, why not, man? You're allowed to there. I don't want to. That's sketchy as fuck. Oh, listen, listen. Ohio's handled it pretty well. Yeah, because us people have not gone there to infect all of them. No, that's true. But like, no, they honestly have. Like, I, ha- oh, I have to give yeah. up props to the home state. They they handled it really well. Their governor seems to be doing a good job. And from what I've heard completely anecdotally, um, even eating in restaurants and stuff seems relatively safe. They're still making people social distance. People seem to be abiding by that. Oddly enough, Ohio is at least northern Ohio, because never forget oh. that the Mason-Dixon line starts at Akron. 480. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but... They seem to be handling it pretty well in Northeast Ohio, and people are not, like, the type to make fun of you for wearing a mask or whatever. Oh, yeah, I don't care. It's yeah. not that bad. They're they're too polite to be mean. They'll do it after you leave. Um, have you thought about, you, you saw Columbus is trying to be renamed Flavortown? Yes, I did see that. I support this. I think that 100%. rocks, and they should absolutely do it. This is what I'm saying. Why not? Dude, if we dug into our absolute trashiness, we could never be conquered. If they renamed Columbus, Ohio, Flavortown, and then the Chinese tried to come and take it, you can take it from my flipping, dipping, 300-pound fingers, <laughs> you sons of bitches. Eat my donkey sauce, bitch? Yes. Oh, boy. We all. This is American solidarity. Eat my donkey sauce, bitch, t-shirts. <sighs> With a picture of Xi Jinping on it. Is that the first Green Lewis merch? Oh, that would be awesome. Eat my donkey sauce, bitch. Oh, boy. Guy Fieri with a AR. No, not not that. <laughs> it's It has that in Helvetica and then flames on the black. Ooh, yeah, that's great. That's amazing. <sighs> Coming soon. And the only thing that lets you know what it is is an ampersand on the back collar. <laughs> I don't think I get it, but okay. We're an ampersand house. We are not an and house. Oh, that's true. You know, the two things actually mean different things. What? This is another Wikipedia dive that I did, but I think we sh- I think we can end the episode. What the fuck does an amp- ampersand doesn't mean and? Um, not exactly. I shan't let this episode end until I know it, what the fucking ampersand is not does not mean and. What? I, I this was a long time ago. Okay. I'm going I'm going to struggle to remember the difference, but like ampersand the reason that we use it in the green and lewis title is a really good example right because the title of the show is green and lewis it's singular even though it's two words connected by the ampersand yes green and lewis two things is two things yes an ampersand gestures towards singularity out of one mm-hmm. or out of two yes whereas and fiercely separates two things yes that's the difference Huh. And I'm sure I have that sort of wrong. I know it's more nuanced than that, but that's, that's why I like the answer. That's basically my misremembering. Yeah, it's but a you, locus. But you do not use the things interchangeably. No, 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 no. That's why you always have, like, you know, Selene and Barnes, 888-888. Yes, Selene and Barnes. Selino. Selino and Barnes are one thing. Yes. That's why I think it's typically used in branding more than in writing. It's like. Because you, know, you would never say R2D2 ampersand C3PO. You would say R2D2 and They C3PO. are a unit though. You you could do it. If they if they had like a Saturday morning cartoon show, it would be R2D2 and C3PO. R2 and 3PO. But that's the title of the show. Yes. That's yeah. not the entities themselves. Yes. Get it? Yes. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. It's all about the entity. That was bad. You can cut that out. Do you want to cue yourself out?